I will also read from Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. But Jesus called the disciples to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask that today, by your Spirit, you would open our hearts to receive the word that we have read, that we might receive the word incarnate, the word made flesh, your Son. We ask this in his name. Amen. At Christmas time, we have to take pretty much everything that we thought we knew about God and scrap it and just throw it out the window. We think we know what God is like, but Christmas challenges that. Let me put it this way. Uh, we've all had people in our lives that we respect, people in our lives that we admire, people that we know are greater than we ourselves are. We say we look up to these people. But if there's anyone greater than we are, it's God, right? If there's anyone we know we have to look up to, it's God, right? And yet at Christmas, we find ourselves looking down on God. See, that baby born in the manger in such lowly conditions, that's God. That's what God looks like when He becomes one of us, when He enters into our humanity and our history, when He comes into our world. The baby Jesus was a fully human baby. And despite what some of our favorite Christmas carols uh, suggest, I'm sure He did cry quite a lot, as all babies do. But that baby was also fully God. He was the God. The gospel accounts of his birth make this clear. In Matthew, as he tells the story of Jesus' birth to the Virgin Mary, he tells us this happened in order to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, which he quotes, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The baby is God with us. With us, This is how God has come to dwell with His people in the form of this baby. When Joseph and Mary looked down on that little baby in the manger, they were looking down on God. When they looked into that baby's face, they were looking into the face of God. The wise men who came to visit must have understood this at some level because when Matthew records they are coming to see Jesus, he tells us they fell down and worshipped Him. They worshipped the baby. They worshipped the baby. And this was not idolatry because the baby was divine. Luke's Gospel also makes this clear. Luke has 
uh, also an extensive account of Christ's birth. And time after time in his birth narrative, he indicates that this baby being born is no ordinary child. It's not merely a baby, but also God in human form. Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel tells Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and overshadow you, and so the one born to you will be called the Son of God. Not just Mary's Son, it will be the Son of God, one who shares God's own nature. Luke 1.76, Zechariah says that his son John, he becomes known as John the Baptist, will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way. But whose way does John prepare? Jesus. And so Jesus must be the face of the Lord. He's the Lord in human flesh. The Lord in human form. In Luke chapter 2, verse 11, the angels announce to the shepherds that there has been a child born in the city of David. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Lord. There's that divine name. The baby is the Lord. And so when those shepherds came and looked down on His crib, they were looking down on the Lord. They were looking down on God. Imagine that. Imagine the Creator and Ruler of all in a crib. Imagine looking down on the Creator. Imagine looking down on the One who holds all the galaxies in the palm of His hand. Of course, the God-baby grew and became the God-child, and then eventually the God-man. But just as people had looked down on him in his infancy, he continued to put himself in positions where people would look down on him. A lot of examples of this, but a clear case in point happened the night he was betrayed and taken away to die. On that night, John 13 tells us that Jesus gathered with His disciples in the upper room. It's a familiar story in John 13. John tells us that as He gathered with His disciples in that upper room, Jesus got down on His knees and began to wash their feet. And as He did so, they were looking down on God. Uh, John makes it clear Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. John tells us at the beginning of that chapter, chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus knew the Father had given all things into His hand. That is, He knew He had all power and dominion. He knew He had everything at His disposal. John says He knew He had come from God and was going back to God. In other words, He knew who He was as the God-man. He knew He had all dominion, all authority, all power, knowing all of that, what did He do? He stooped and He served. He didn't say, all things belong to Me. The Father has given all things into My hand. And so, you get down and serve Me. No, He knew He was Lord. And He expressed His Lordship through His service. He got down on His knees and washed their feet. And when he did so, they were looking down on one who is God. Now, I don't have to tell you in that culture, because in pretty much any culture, superiors just didn't wash the feet of inferiors. That was a job for the lowest slave in the household. But here, the superior 
serves the inferior. You know, kings don't usually kneel before their subjects. It's the other way around. Teachers don't usually kneel before their students. A master doesn't usually kneel before his slaves. But on that night, that's what happens. Jesus takes all the standard hierarchies and He reverses them. He turns them upside down. The Creator got down on His knees before His creatures. The ruler served the rule. The Almighty served the weak. I can't imagine that. The Creator and ruler of all kneeling before you to wash your feet. Imagine looking down on God as He serves you in the most humble way possible. See, really, Jesus' whole life was one of descent. He descended from heaven to earth. He descended to the crib in the manger. He descended to His knees to wash their feet. He descended to the tomb in death. Quite naturally, we think of God as above us and hope we can somehow reach Him. But in Jesus, God descends to us even below us in order to reach us. See, what Christmas means, what the Incarnation means is you can't get to God. And so God came to get you. You can't serve God, so God came to serve you. Jesus' whole life was one of service. It was a life of humility and sacrifice. There's no real illustration that can capture this. And every illustration that's given has got all kinds of shortcomings. But still, let me try. You know, let me give it the old uh, preacher's best shot and try to illustrate this for you. Imagine a billionaire. Imagine the estate of this billionaire. This is a man, uh, the man who lives there has everything at his disposal. All the money he could ever hope for. He's got the best house, the best clothes, the most comfortable and lavish living space possible. And he's got a butler to wait on him. But one day, this billionaire owner of the estate takes off all his fancy clothes and he puts on the butler's uniform. And he grabs hold of his butler and he walks him into the master's suite. And the billionaire says to the butler, here I am at your service. Do you need anything? Can I do anything for you? See, that's Jesus. Jesus is the owner of all. He dwelt in the glorious presence of His Father's house from all eternity. But one day He left that House and he put on a servant's uniform. And he came to us and he said to us, Here I am at your service. Can I do anything for you? Jesus is your servant. He who was rich became poor for our sakes in order to enrich us. I think that's really what our passage from Mark 9 that we read this morning teaches us. Mark 9, 30-37. Passage starts out off with Jesus saying He's going to be betrayed and killed. The Son of Man will be handed over to men and they will kill Him. Why? Why is that going to happen? Why is Jesus going to allow this to happen? Why? 
It's to serve us. The disciples don't understand it yet. They can't figure it out. But Jesus is going to go to the cross in order to serve and save His subjects. Because only His sacrificial service on our behalf can save us. To move through this passage, His disciples clearly don't get it because they're arguing over greatness. After Jesus has exposed their pride, their folly in arguing over greatness, what does He do? Mark tells us He sits down. So once again, they're looking down on Him. They're looking down on God. God in the flesh. And what does He do? He begins to teach them about true greatness. And He takes their whole concept of greatness and turns it upside down. He says, whoever desires to be first should make himself last of all. And whoever desires to be great should make himself servant of all. In other words, if you want to be great like me, Jesus is saying, you should serve like me. If you want to be exalted, then you should lower yourself and humble yourself. And then Jesus uses the example of a little child. He wants His disciples to see greatness is found in doing the little things and in serving the little people. Here he's talking about serving children as a mark of true greatness. Why a child? Because, you know, to serve a child, you have to get down at the child's level. You have to descend. You have to lower yourself. Jesus wants them to see. He says, when you serve even one of these little children, you're serving Me. You receive one of these little children, you're really receiving Me. He wants them to see. Service to the least of these is really service to the greatest of these. In the next chapter, Jesus continues to develop this point because His disciples continue to not get it. And again, we find him taking children into his arms and he tells his adult disciples, unless you become as a little child, you will not enter the kingdom. And of course, Jesus again is the model. Jesus himself became a little child. The Son of God became a child literally so he could enter the kingdom and establish that kingdom. Now he says we must become like little children as well. We must lower ourselves. We must humble ourselves. We must recognize our utter dependence and accept the service of another on our behalf if we are to enter the kingdom. In the part of Mark 10 that we read this morning, verses 42 to 45, Jesus continues with this. Jesus summarizes his whole life as one of servanthood. At every stage of his life, he is a servant. 10.45 is really the summary verse that summarizes his mission. He says he did not come to be served, but to serve. Now what does this mean? The rest of the verse explains it. How did he come to serve us? He came to give his life as a ransom many. That's what service looks like. Laying light down your life for the sake of others. Giving of yourself. Dying to yourself that others might live more fully. Jesus is indicating here that His ultimate act of service 
will come at the cross. But he wants us to understand everything leading up to the cross and indeed even everything after the cross is all about servanthood. Indeed, we can say Jesus is still a servant today. He serves us by interceding for us at the Father's right hand. What does Jesus do seated in the heavens at His Father's right hand? He serves you by praying for you, by interceding for you with His Father. How does He serve you even right now? He serves you in the liturgy. He's serving us all this morning. He serves us by speaking His Word to us. He serves us by proclaiming His forgiveness to us. He serves us by delivering His gifts over to us. He's going to serve us in a few minutes here this morning at His table. Indeed, that's what the word servant actually means. One who waits on tables. A table waiter. Jesus is still our servant. You know, there are two things that I think really make Christmas amazing. You know, it's not, it's not the Charlie Brown Christmas special or anything like that. I mean, you know, we have fun with all those kind of things. But what really makes Christmas amazing? Two things, I think. One is understanding who was born on that day. Whose birth are we celebrating? It was the birth of God in the flesh. The God-man. It's as if the Father said to the Son, Son, I want you to go down there. I want you to go down to earth and become a man and show men what I'm really like. And the Son says back to the Father, I would love nothing more than to enter into that world as one of them to show them your goodness and your greatness, to show them your love and your mercy and your wisdom and your holiness. I would delight to do that. That's what Christmas is about. We have to remember the one who was born, the God-man. But the other thing that makes Christmas so amazing is remembering all that the one who was born went on to do as the God-man. His life of service and humility is a perfect representation of what God is really like. And at every stage along the way in His life, and yes, even in His death, He is showing us what God is really like. And this is so important for us because I think we have a tendency, I think we have a tendency to carve up the story of Jesus into the human parts and the divine parts. We know Jesus is God and man, and so we look for evidence of that in the Gospel accounts, but I think we have a tendency to go about it in all the wrong ways. We tend to think when Jesus is showing off His power, that's His deity on display. When Jesus is humble and acts as a servant, He's showing off His humanity. But that's just a false way of looking at it. All of the Gospels tell a single biography. It's not as though there are two biographies mixed together in the Gospels, a divine biography and a human biography. And this divine biography and human biography somehow got twisted together. No, in the Gospels there is one biography of one person, this divine human person. The Gospels altogether tell us the story of the Son of God incarnated in human flesh. Everything Jesus does, He does as the God-man. 
everything he does simultaneously reveals true godness and true humanness, true godhood and true manhood. And this is so important because it's only if Jesus in his human life is showing us what God is really like. This is the only hope we have of truly knowing God. Outside of Christ, God is robed in light and unapproachable. But in Christ, God is robed in flesh and fully approachable. In fact, He's not just approachable. He's touchable. He's visible. Indeed, we might even say in the Lord's Supper, He's edible. See, the, Lord, the incarnation does not veil God. The incarnation unveils God as He really is. And the, people, the reason that people did not recognize God in the man Jesus during the course of his earthly life is because he did not fit the description of the God they thought they were looking for, the God they thought they knew. The reason they didn't see God in Jesus is because they thought they knew what God would do when he showed up and it didn't match the description of how Jesus was living and acting. People missed seeing God in Jesus because God isn't what they thought He was like. See, what does the Incarnation do? The Incarnation shows us God in human form. The Incarnation, you could, you could say, turns the life of God inside out for all the world to see. Jesus makes God translucent to us. So we shouldn't think the power bits show us his deity, the humility bits show us his humanity. No, everything he does shows us both his godhood and his manhood. And so, for example, we should never slip into thinking that somehow Jesus died instead of God. That it was just a man hanging there on the cross and somehow his deity wasn't involved in the pain and suffering Involved in Calvary. No, we can and must say, God Himself died on the cross. God experienced death. He experienced human death in the man Jesus. Now even when we say that, we don't really know what it means anymore than we understand fully what it means to say God became man in Jesus. But it's what we must say. In Jesus, we find that God is man enough to die for us. I love the way Dorothy Sayers puts it. I think this ought to be read every Christmas. So let me take care of it for this year. <clears throat> this is what Dorothy Sayers says. The central dogma of the Incarnation is that by which Christianity's relevance stands or falls. If Christ were only man, then He is irrelevant to any thought about God. If he is only God, then he is entirely irrelevant to any experience of human life. The outline of the official story, the tale of the time when God was the underdog and got beaten, when he submitted to the conditions he had laid down and became a man like the men he had made, and the men he had made broke him and killed him. This terrifying drama of which God is both the victim and the hero. What the Incarnation means is this. That for whatever reason God chose to make man as He is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, 
He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience. From the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. And then she goes on, she says, here Christianity has its enormous advantage over every other religion in the world. It is the only religion that gives value to evil and suffering. What do we find God doing about this business of sin and evil? God did not abolish the fact of evil. He transformed it. He did not stop the crucifixion. He rose from the dead. I think that so perfectly captures it. See, Jesus, the God-man, lived as a servant. Every minute of every day, He chose to serve. From Bethlehem all the way through Calvary, every moment was chosen. And He chose to serve. Nobody else who's ever lived has gotten to write their own script, write their own ticket, dictate exactly how their life will go. But Jesus, in all His omnipotence, did. And how did He use His omnipotence? He used His omnipotence to become weak, to become powerless, to suffer and die for us. Don't make the mistake of, of thinking of what Jesus did you know, as something kind of like that TV show, Undercover Boss. I, I never watched the show, but I, I understand the premise. Uh, it's a show where these high-ranking executives in large companies will go undercover in their own companies to see what it's really like for the lower level employees, for the entry level employees. They stoop to a lower level in the company for a short period of time to experience that. That's not what it's like with Jesus. Jesus is not God undercover for just a little bit of time. No, when Jesus serves sacrificially, He is showing us what God is like, what He has always been like, and what He always will be like. In other words, the incarnation and the way that Jesus lived as God incarnate was not anything out of character for God. When Jesus acts as a servant, He's acting very much in character for God. Again, the incarnation was God's way of showing what His character had been like from the very beginning. That's really John's point at the beginning of 1 John 1. He says, that which was from the beginning. Okay, so he's talking about that which has always existed. That which has existed from all eternity. That which was with the Father from the beginning. John goes on to say, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have handled with our hands the Word of life. See, Jesus is the eternal God. The God who was there from the beginning. The One who has life in Himself. That God. 
That's the God that showed up in the man Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's God with skin. God with flesh. He's the eternal God made audible and tangible and visible. And that includes people seeing Jesus die. People seeing Jesus when he, people hearing Jesus when he cried out in agony. Just as people were present to see God when he was born into our world, people were present to see God when he died. That which was from the beginning died. That's the whole point. He came in order to do this for us. And all the early Christian heresies went wrong at just this point. Theologians like Arius, you may not know that name from church history, but Arius was one of the great arch-heretics of the early church. Arius said Jesus could not be fully God. He had to be less than fully God. Why? Because He was born as an infant. And surely, you cannot squeeze the Creator into the body of an infant. That was Arius' argument. Surely, God could not have dirty diapers or be in need of burping. Surely God would never get involved in the muck and messiness of material life to that degree. Not only that, but Arius reasoned, surely Jesus can't be fully God because He died on the cross. Surely God could not undergo something that made Him look so weak. Something so undignified as death on the cross. Sirius said, you look at that man hanging there naked on the cross. That doesn't look much like God, does it? And so he said to the Orthodox Christians, you people are crazy to claim that that is God. God must be higher and holier and mightier than that. But that line of reasoning, Arius's line of reasoning, collides with the Gospel accounts. It collides with the Apostles' Creed and with the Nicene Creed. The early Christians did not invent the doctrine of the Incarnation because they never could have dreamed it up. They had to discover it when there was no other alternative explanation for the evidence because it was so counterintuitive. But in discovering the doctrine of the Incarnation, they discovered the truth about God. And so let's talk about what this means for just a minute here as we wrap this up. If Christmas does anything for you, let it be a revelation to you of who God is. God came in the flesh and experienced human life and death in order to win our salvation. Isn't it comforting? Hear me in this. Isn't it comforting to know that God has experienced the worst that human life has to offer. And so no matter how sad or depressed you have ever felt, Jesus experienced greater depression in the Garden of Gethsemane right before His death. No matter how lonely or friendless you have ever felt, Jesus experienced greater loneliness as He hung on the tree. No matter how much pain you've ever been in, I can assure you, Jesus experienced greater pain at Calvary. Jesus experienced hunger. 
and thirst and poverty and betrayal and abandonment and false accusations and even worse than that, a false conviction. He experienced all of that for you. And so when you experience these things, you can know He's there with you in it. He can help you. He can bring you through it. He's been there. He's done that. He got through it. And He can get you through it too. Consider greatness. What does it mean to be truly great? The disciples, we know, were arguing over greatness because they were prideful. The opposite of pride is what? It's humility. Christmas is all about the humility of God. Now, if you pick up a systematic theology textbook and you look for a list of God's attributes, you probably won't see humility included in the list. And yet, it's most certainly there and on display in the Scriptures. Christmas is all about the humility of God. And so what does that mean for us? Augustine captured it really, really well. Augustine once said, how can it be? God has humbled Himself and yet still man is proud. If God is humble, how dare we be prideful? Because God is humble, because God has stooped to serve, no matter how high any of us climb on the human scale of worth and greatness and wealth and fame, we should never think we are above serving others. If God is not above serving others, neither are you. Neither is anyone. If God has served, you ought not to think yourself exempt. But second, because of the disciples' pride, we find that they became rivalrous. This is why they got into an argument with one another. They became rivals. If the opposite of pride is humility, what's the opposite of rivalry? I would say it's love. And what Jesus does through the whole course of His life is He gives to His disciples a model of love. A model of loving service. And He does this because He wants his group of disciples to be a real community, a real society of love. A, a real community in which they love and serve one another. And he wants his disciples to do this because in this way, they will reflect God's own life of loving service. Because really, this is what Father, Son, and Spirit have been doing from all eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been loving and serving one another from all eternity. Let me tell you what the Trinity is like. Again, imperfect illustration. But when I was a little kid, I would say to my grandmother, I love you. And she would say back to me, I love you the most. And I would say to her, no, I love you the most. And she'd say to me, no, I love you the most. And we'd go back and forth doing this for some time. That's what the Trinity is like. The three persons of the Trinity have each been saying to the others, I love you the most. And the others will say back, no, I love you the most. No, I love you the most. No, I love you the most. That's the life 
of the Trinity. It's not a rivalrous competition for greatness like the disciples are engaging in. It's a kind of friendly competition to see which person of the Trinity can outdo the others in self-giving love and service. And of course, in the Trinity, it always ends as a three-way tie. But that's what Jesus wants from us. Not who can be the greatest in worldly terms, but who can be the greatest servant? Who can be the greatest at love? That's what Jesus is calling us to. Who can be the greatest servant? Who can show the greatest love? And we do that in the community by saying to one another, I love you the most. No, I love you the most. I love you the most. Here, let me prove it. Let me show it. And that's what we do. And when we live this way, our community becomes a reflection of the Trinity. We show this kind of love by laying down our lives for one another. Jesus says in Mark 10.42 that in Gentile societies, that's pagan societies, the powerful lord it over the weak. That is, they use their power to push their subjects around, to boss their subjects around, to bully their subjects around. That describes virtually every society in all of history that has not been influenced by the gospel. Virtually every society in history that has not been influenced by or shaped by the gospel is set up as a pyramid. It's set up as a pyramid with the very powerful people at top and everyone beneath them serving them. And of course, then at the very bottom of the period, you've got of the pyramid, you've got the weak and the vulnerable, you've got children and the poor, anyone who's helpless. Those pyramids in Egypt, this is what they represent. They were built to reflect the shape of Egyptian society, to reflect the model of that society. And in a pyramid structure like that, whoever is beneath you in the pyramid serves you, and service is always a one-way street. The lower serve the higher, never the higher serving the lower. What Jesus says to His disciples right here, He says, that's not how it's going to be among you. And we find from the rest of the New Testament, Jesus came to replace that pyramid model of society with what we would call a body model of society. And that's why in the New Testament epistles, again and again, the church is called the body of Christ. See, in that pyramid structure, the lower serve the higher, and that's it. It's just a one, service is just a one-way street. You've got the served, and you've got those who do the serving. Not so in a body model of society. In the body model, every member serves every other member. Each one uses his gifts and his power on behalf of the others, indeed on behalf of the whole rest of the body. And so what Jesus is doing here is revolutionary. He's reconfiguring what community looks like, what a true society ought to look like. Service no longer flows from the weak to the powerful. No, among Jesus' disciples, everyone will serve everyone else. Yes, the lower will serve the higher, but the higher will also serve the lower. And that's the beauty. That flows out of what God did at Christmas. See, if the Son of Man came to serve us, if He came to pour out His life for us, if He came to die for the life of the world, then we know we are called 
to serve us as well. We know we are called to pour out our lives for one another and for the sake of the world as well. Father, we do thank You that Jesus, the Son of Man, the One with all power and authority at His disposal, came to serve. He was great, but He came in humility and in lowliness. May we trust in Him and receive the service that He has rendered and continues to render on our behalf. And may we also learn to imitate His example that our lives might be more and more conformed to the pattern of His life. This we pray in the power of Your Holy Spirit, in the name of the Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.